HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And uh, when you are uh, not listening to me on In the Drink, you can always find me uh, at one of our restaurants, uh, Delanima, Lartuzzi, La Picho, and Fora. Or really this summer, I will be specifically at the outdoor restaurant, Altalinia over in Chelsea at the uh, Highline Hotel on 20th Street and 10th Avenue. Um, come visit Altalinia. We have a great selection of aperitifs, especially our frozen Negroni, our famous frozen Negroni. We sold 9,600 of them last year in five months. Help us get to 10,000 this year. Uh, it's really, really fun. Um, and also, uh, we're coming to you live at our new time, 11 a.m. on Wednesdays. Uh, this is about our third week at 11 a.m. Um, really, we just made the switch so that I can eat as much Roberta's pizza as possible. But if you can't tune in at 11, you can always find us on heritageradionetwork.org or iTunes. Um, and, and please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us uh, lots of ratings and comments. We love that stuff. All right. We have a great show for you today. Um, this is uh, a person I was just introduced to and a product that I was just introduced to, but what a fantastic story. We have Bailey Pryor here, the CEO of the Real McCoy Rum and also Emmy Award winning, multiple Emmy Award winning filmmaker, documentarian. Um, he is, his, uh, his story is amazing. The, uh, the rum is fantastic. Uh, I'm excited to have you as a guest today. Welcome to In the Drink. Thanks, Joe. Glad to be here. 
Um, okay, so your your first career really is a filmmaker and documentarian, which you've done really, really well at, and uh, um, and, and the the rum really was inspired by by that. Is That's that exactly right. Yeah, I've been making documentary films for about twenty five years, and and uh, mostly for PBS and Discovery Channel. Um, I used to own a ski movie company called Warren Miller Films, and we'd make ski films all over the world too, which was kind of fun. But it was while I was making a movie about uh, Bill McCoy, the, the famous rum runner of the Prohibition era, that I came up with the idea to start this rum company and he was known as the real McCoy for never adulterating the alcohol so you know during prohibition uh, other people would cut the alcohol whatever they could get their mm-hmm. hands on with turpentine wood alcohol prune juice water you know and, and those products got called booze and hooch uh, but McCoy never did that so they called his product the real McCoy and that's why we know that phrase today and how did you come across this story? Uh, my friend Steve Jones actually is a publisher, and he gave me the book and said, oh, this is an amazing story. You should make a movie about this. And people say that to me all the time. I got this great idea about him. You know, make a movie about me is usually what I hear. And uh, in this case, the, uh, the, the book was fantastic, and it's such a great part of American history that people really don't know about. They know the phrase, the real McCoy, but they don't know where it comes from. They don't know why, uh, you know, it means what it means. So um, while I was making that movie, I just, you know, came up with the idea. I, th- I thought it would be fun to start a rum company and I wondered if anybody had trademarked the term the real McCoy and of course nobody uh, had I'd looked it up and and my attorney looked it up and they said no nobody holds the trademark for the real McCoy for spirits so we um, we did that and we applied for it and we got the trademark and that's what kind of began the whole the whole process and I was making the movie while this was all happening mm-hmm. and, and that's also when I found some photographs that McCoy had taken uh, and he's showing different um, boxes of alcohol being loaded on the deck of his ship and one of them was a, uh, a barrel of rum that said Barbados rum on it so I knew the rum was coming from Barbados uh, this whole I want to dissect multiple levels here because there's so much interesting stuff I cannot believe that real McCoy was never was never trademarked by the way I mean so when you come across ideas people pitch you or you, you read an article in, in a, a newspaper or a magazine what are the parameters that like, kind of go through your head and you decide, I'm going to jump into this as something I want to make a, a documentary about? Sure. Well, th- those, I specialize in making films that are really based on um, subjects that are quite complex that need to be distilled down, if you will. Um, bad pun, but uh, that's basically what we're doing. And getting it into an hour or 90 minutes. And that's not an easy task for some really complex subjects. So I love to specialize in those types of stories that have a lot of material that's hard to get your head around. And then I can specialize and really breaking it down into parts that people can consume and understand. So um, the McCoy story was great because it was just such a giant story. You know, the beginning of Prohibition and why. You know, the fact that there were so many factors involved in getting Prohibition approved in the United States and with the political will that was required to do that was a really interesting thing. So, I, you know, certain, certain subjects talk to me that way. And so that's why I ended up making this particular movie. About yeah, and I'm sure that booze is, or, or at least alcohol is something that is appealing to a wide swath of people. Oh yeah, yeah, and and you know, it, but it's a, it's an integral part of so many people's lives. You know, people like wine and they like their beer and they like their spirits, and you know, it's a part of your identity in a certain mm-hmm. way. And and so uh, you know, I think that that's the type of subject that is meaningful to people. And and if you care about what you're eating, if you care about what you're drinking. Uh, then you know you would be interested in a movie like this because it talks all about those aspects of how the history came about and how the how the ultimately you know these really high quality products were maintained. You know McCoy could have succumbed to every pressure that was out there at the time and cut the alcohol with turpentine and you know all wood alcohol and things that they were doing back then, but he never did that. 
you know, and this is long before people were green and long before, you know, Whole Foods and things like that. This was an era where nobody was really thinking about that kind of thing. They were just thinking about how can I make money the fastest way I can. And he had this sort of integrity that allowed him to do something that was um, conceived as illegal, but technically was not illegal because he never took his boat inside the three mile limit. So he was always in international waters. So, so he, he, he was completely uh, abiding by the international laws, yes. but was really getting on the nerves of uh, a local police force and actually even the, uh, Coast Guard. the Coast Guard, the federal. Yeah. 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 So he, he was an embarrassment to the Coast Guard because they could do nothing about him. Um, it, you know, it was a strange time because in, with the same stroke of a pen, when they when they signed the Volstead Act, which began prohibition, they weren't understanding that 50% of the U.S. government's income at the time came from the taxation of alcohol that came into the United States. So at the same stroke of a pen, you just cut your budget in half and started a war against rum. So uh, they had no money to build the Coast Guard. The, the U.S. government wasn't collecting much in, in income tax at the time, so they really needed this kind of, of income, and they, they didn't have it. So McCoy could, and the other rum runners could do whatever they wanted with impunity because there was nothing the government could do. Um, you also highlight how he did not, he actually didn't drink himself. Yeah, that's right. He do was you a think that, that was part of his success in any way? Um, not necessarily. Yeah. I think he was... Um, he just had never, he grew up in a Methodist home and he mm-hmm. had never decided to drink. And so he didn't look at the alcohol as like some protest. He didn't look at this as I hate this law and I'm a, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fight it. He looked at it as business. You know, the year 1919 was a terrible economy. He had two businesses. They were both kind of falling apart. Nobody was buying boats that he was building. And, uh, and he owned a couple of ships and he thought, you know what? I, I need to move product. I need to ship things. And the, the economy is so dead I need to find something I can make some money on. So he didn't care if he was carrying lumber or cotton or alcohol. He was just moving it. But as long as he wasn't going to break the law, that was key for him. So he didn't want to break the law. He had this, this man with integrity. Right. right. He had a moral code, a little bit of a moral compass there that he never, never violated it. You know? So it was kind of interesting in the end as the government really needed a moral victory mm-hmm. by capturing who you know, McCoy had become the face of legal defiance against this very unpopular law. Only 15% of the voting populace showed up to vote. And that's why 85% of the people who didn't show up to vote were very pissed off that they didn't, you know, now there's prohibition, which lasted 13 years in this country. So, um, you know, McCoy was just an opportunistic guy, a smart businessman, and, um, you know, wanted to try to make a living the best way he could in a a bad economy. You can't fault him for that. So you're in the middle of researching this this project and... before it's even released, you're like, I want to go and, and make rum. I want to be part of that. I mean, has that ever happened to you in any of your other 60-plus documentaries where you're you're doing the research? Like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. I want to start a ski company or like, anything like that yeah, at all? No, no, this is the only one that's ever spoken to me in terms of starting a new product mm-hmm. or, or going into a new line of business. It just seemed like a lot of fun. And I started this a long time ago. This was before the sort of craft spirit and really even before the big boom in craft beer. So nobody else had, nobody was building new distilleries in the United States yet. And that, that became, that kind of happened after we began this process. And I was originally thinking I wanted to start my own distillery, but then I, I found uh, photographs that McCoy had taken that showed barrels of rum being loaded onto his ship. And you could see in the pictures that there was a custom stamp on the barrels that said Barbados rum. 
So uh, my wife Jennifer and I flew down to Barbados to meet with the head of the National Archives to try to figure out which distillery it was. And, and they said, we have absolutely no idea. There were probably 50 distilleries on the island back then, so we don't know. And, uh, but they said that probably whoever was exporting it would have been, it might have been the Seal family because they were the largest exporters at the time, uh, the R.L. Seal and Company. Uh, and they own Foursquare Distillery in Barbados. And, and so they said, we have no idea, but it might be them because they were probably the biggest ones. And um, I thought it was another, another uh, company and, and another major name uh, rum company. And I went over to them and met with them. And they said, oh, it definitely wasn't us. We didn't start bottling and exporting until 1957. So it has to be the Seals. But we still don't know to this day. But um, I approached Richard Seal, who's the fourth generation master distiller there, and he loved the story and loved the whole idea. And I, I went to him and said, look, I want to make the same rum that McCoy would have had on the deck of his ship. What, what would that be? What, what would that recipe be? And he said, well, that's easy. There wouldn't be a recipe. Because in 1920, nobody was adding sweeteners and artificial colors and things like that that you see in, in a lot of rums today. So um, he said there, it would just be an aged rum and you'd put it in the barrel and that would be it. So there mm-hmm. wouldn't be this after effect that happens in, in industrial alcohol today. So he decided that he loved that idea and we went and, and, and started that rum and then we released it. And in the first two years, we won 67 major awards worldwide. Um, basically every major award you can win in the spirits industry because it's a very difficult rum to make. And the people who really understand rum know that you, you know, if you, if you don't have great fermentation, if you don't have a, Mm -hmm. you know, a high quality distillate, you can just hide behind it by adding sugar. Right. And and then it hides all those sort of off flavors. If your if your maturation isn't great, your barrels are dull, whatever it is that, that it would affect your your flavor profile. If you don't do it exactly right and very consistently in a certain way, then you can just fix any problems by putting a little more sugar in it. And that's why today some of the rums on the marketplace today. There's one in particular that has 96 grams of sugar per liter. Come on, 96 grams Ugh. of sugar is just to just to visualize this is an entire rocks glass. You know, like what you drink a scotch in, like a a brandy snifter or something like that, that would be filled with white sugar. That's how much 96 grams of sugar is. So pour that in a one liter bottle. It would be two and a half inches deep in the bottom of the bottle of white sugar. It wouldn't even dissolve in a liter. So that's, that's a dessert wine. That's a, that's how sweet a dessert wine is, yeah. right? And you think of that as something that is you're you're expecting for there to be sugar, but I'm sure with the high alcohol, that it, it kind of covers up how much sugar there actually yeah. is. Yeah, and it's it, oh, it's basically a liqueur at that point. But yeah. that's what a lot of rums are. And I think today you see a lot of people have have kind of gravitated in this in the rum business to, to sweetening. It's called dosage. You know, it's been happening with champagne and and wines for centuries actually. And and but with rum, uh, the whole industry has kind of gone in that direction. And we kind of went in the opposite direction and wanted to be a dry style as opposed to a sweet style rum. So um, that was very interesting to Richard. It was a real challenge. Uh, he likes to make that kind of, of uh, rum. And so we teamed up and it was a great partnership. And now uh, we're selling in 16 states in the U.S. and 11 countries in Europe. What else are you allowed to add to rum? So sugar, coloring? Rum is totally unregulated. Wow. So you can people are doing whatever they want. They're putting mm-hmm. propylene glycol. They're putting in ink and sugar. Um, all kinds of chemicals. And, and, and in the United States, we have no labeling on our alcohol so that you never see a nutrition label on the side of an alcohol bottle. So the fact that people don't know that lots of vodka, for example, has sugar added to it yeah. um, to smooth it out because it's pretty you know, harsh industrial alcohol. Um, there's a lot of wine companies that are using meat products as a clarifying agent in their wines. So they'll put fish bellies and chicken gizzards and you know dried powders of those products 
into the wine to clarify it. And then you have people who are vegetarians yeah. finding agents, yeah. yeah, drinking meat products, not knowing that their that their favorite wine has this stuff in it because yeah. we don't regulate any of the stuff. We There's don't over two hundred additives you're allowed to add to wine. Yes, and then all you have to put on the label is contain sulfites exactly, and don't drink too much of your pregnant. Like, that's all you have to write. <laughs> but like some of these things are are highly controlled toxic ingredients at certain you know certain yeah. levels. Propylene glycol is the worst one I think from the research that I've done. Um, it's in it's used in a lot of of alcohols. Um, it's also in a lot of soda pop. You know, there there people use it pretty regularly. But it's a it's a not a great thing. And and for me personally, I don't want to drink that kind of stuff. And and I, I think in a certain to a certain degree, that's part of why. Um, you know, rum has kind of this interesting connection to the world, this long history, you know, it's the original spirit it's in America. It was a huge thing. There were, Mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of distilleries up and down the Eastern seaboard in the 1800s and 1700s. Um, you know, it was hugely important in America, but, um, you know, now it's kind of what separated us from the British, right? They, they weren't as, they were more gin drinkers. Yes, and we those were like guys more, like their gin. Like their gin. We were more like rum and like some harsh whiskey drinkers. Yeah, eventually whiskey. Yeah. yeah, whiskey. But the whiskey industry became big in the United States because basically people moved into the Ohio River Valley and started farming. And they couldn't get their crops out of the valley and to the big cities before the crop would rot. So they started distilling. And that's why we have all this Kentucky and Tennessee mm-hmm. whiskey because mm-hmm. and bourbon. That's, that's why those industries were developed because they couldn't sell all that wheat that they were growing. Um, so that's the that's the old history of that in America. Were you a rum drinker before? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I've been sailing all my life, so I've, you know, boating is big. Rum drinkers are big in boating, so I've always been uh, interested in rum, and and uh, I always liked the dry style rums, not even knowing that at the mm-hmm. time. I never knew that what was going on with rum. So, but the, the, today I look at the rums that I used to drink then and realize, wow, I, I'm not a sweet person, you know. So. But some people love sweet, and I don't think you should vilify it. So I'm not, I don't want that message to come across. You know, it's not wrong to drink a sweetened rum. In fact, there are some really beautiful ones that are very well made with really interesting sweeteners that they use, pineapple wines and raisin wines and all sorts of things. But um, I think you should be, you should be, you know, drink what you love, but be careful what you pay for. Because if you're just buying like a cheap industrial alcohol that's never been inside of a barrel and somebody puts ink and sugar in it, and they sell it for the same price as as the stuff that's sat in a barrel for 12 years, like our 12-year-aged real McCoy rum. Um, you know, that, to me, is the odd part, where people don't even know. They'll walk up on the shelf and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to buy this black goo stuff that, you know, doesn't that, that color doesn't exist in nature. You can't leave it in a barrel and it gets black, right. you know, opaque. That's food coloring. That's the only way it can get to that color. So if you like that, that's great, but you should be aware of what you're drinking and what that is. It's usually basically a very low quality industrial alcohol and uh, they just put the sugar in it to make it palatable have you thought about putting an ingredients label on yours absolutely in fact we're redesigning stuff right now and and coming up with ideas and thinking about the future in that way yeah oh very cool all right we're gonna uh, take a quick break uh, we'll be back more with bailey Pryor from the real mccoy run right after this
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. All right, we are back with Bailey Pryor of the Real McCoy Rum. Just outstanding, pure, delicious uh, rum from Barbados. Uh, I've uh, I've had the pleasure of trying the twelve year, and I have to say I, I really love it. Uh, Thank you. And also uh, the uh, uh, documentarian behind uh, the film uh, uh, called The Real McCoy, which is now playing on PBS. Yeah, this is now playing on PBS. Yep. Great. And um, also really, really fantastic. Only fifty six minutes, a little bit shorter than yep. some of your other yeah. It's a it's a you know a PBS hour. And uh, a lot of fun to make that movie. It took me almost five years to make the film. Um, I didn't have a lot of money to do that movie, so it was really a, a labor of love. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up having to wear a lot of hats. So I, I was the director and the writer, of course. I, I was the producer, but I also shot a lot of it. So I was this, one of the cinematographers, and then and then I was one of the editors. And uh, it was just a really fun time to make that movie. And we were very surprised when, you know, suddenly out of nowhere we get this notification that it was nominated for five Emmy Awards. And you won the Emmys in all of those categories. We won all five, yeah. It was amazing. I have never experienced anything like that in my life. It was a crazy night. My my wife Jennifer and I got to go to the Emmys and we're sitting at the table and just thinking, uh, there's no way I'm going to get called up for any of this. And uh, and then they, they we won the first one, which was writing, which I was very excited about. Because to win an Emmy in writing is a huge deal because there's a lot of really great writers out mm-hmm. there in the world. And so then uh, it was funny. I went up on stage and I did my speech and said all the wrong things and forgot half of what I was going to say and, you know, ultimately walked backstage. And as soon as I walked backstage, the guy, there's a huge guy in a tuxedo with a big headset on. And you're and he, holding your Emmy. I'm holding my Emmy. Yeah. Triumphant. And, and he grabs the Emmy out of my hand. And I'm like, dude, that's my Emmy. And he goes, no, no, this is a prop. Yours is back there behind stage in, the, in a box somewhere. Go find it. And he wiped it off with a towel and handed it back to the young lady who walked it right back out on stage to the next person wow <laughs> i had no idea that's how it happened. yeah it was kind of funny so by the time i end up going up the fifth time he and i were like buddies you know we're like fist pumping and you know joking dude. around yeah it was pretty funny so uh really really crazy night and so you, you leave with five Emmys, and you're like, I, I need a bag for this or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they took a, there's a great picture of me. They, they asked me to do the all five Emmys at once. So I'm trying to hold five of them in my arms, and they, they took a picture of me, and you can find it on our website, you know? Typically, what would, you, what would your role be uh, in a more well-funded documentary? I write and direct and produce. So okay. that's normal for me. I like to do those those positions just because, you know, producing is really fun. Putting the deals together, I really enjoy that. Building the financing for the film, um, structuring the team who's going who's gonna to work on it. Um, directing, I love because it's just really fun to communicate with people and go interview folks. And you never really know what anybody's going to say. You know, I'm, I'm not writing dialogue. I'm, I'm, when, I, when I write these things, I'm, I'm writing what I assume someone's going to say. And I kind of structure the story and then I let them do their thing and i have very balanced films i don't really have an agenda you don't see me inserting my opinions or you know agenda setting in my films in fact many times i don't even use any narrators at all i allow the people on camera to tell the entire story in their own words which is a very difficult way of making a film called direct cinema and um it's so much easier to just like write narration and then have somebody like blurt out what you're trying to say as opposed to doing the third and fourth interview with the same person to get them in that spot where they're delivering a line just the way it needs to be delivered. 
Um, but it's uh, still, you know, very much their their story. So I enjoy that. Wow, you you are our first Emmy award winning guest here, and you have multiple. All right. So I'm, All right. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll have more. I, I hope so. I hope this uh, this attracts uh, uh, attracts more. Um, okay, so I want to go back to to your rum, and uh, mm-hmm. can you kind of explain to us, you know, now that you've uh, met with the Seal family and have decided what this the way that you're going to make it? How often are you going down there? What is, what is your correspondence like? Or if you kind of set it in place and now you just say, you know what, we sold really well last year. Let's let's make a little bit more this year. Like, is there an ongoing? Oh no, there's definitely an ongoing dialogue between Richard and I about. Um you know, kind of what the agenda is, where we're headed. Richard's a great innovator. And so he comes out with all sorts of really interesting ideas. Um, we're looking at doing a, a set of limited editions in the years ahead. Mm-hmm. And then when you're de- dealing with an age drum, you have to think years ahead. So this will be ready in four years. This will be ready in three years. This will be ready in seven years. You know, th- these are the kinds of conversations that we're having so that you can um, have this beautiful stable of products that, you know, we, we have our, our three primaries, you know, our three-year aged white rum, which comes out of the barrel being the same color as our amber five-year aged rum. But we filter it back to, you know, being clear so that we can, uh, you know, sell it because a lot of people want to use that mm-hmm. for, for cocktails. And so well, the strategy of what to make and how to make it, um, what the aging is going to be, the types of barrels that we're going to use. These are, these are all big discussions and it's really Richard driving the creative on that, but it's, it's fun to, for me, I look at it as a big internship in maturation, distillation, fermentation. I'm a total science geek, so I love it. And just reading about it and, and now practicing it and learning about it more from one of the masters. And for the 12 year, uh, was, I mean, your, your project started less than 12 years ago. Is that, yeah, we started nine years ago and, um, but Richard had already had some product that he had, you know, he doesn't adulterate any of his rum. So there's, he basically has a, a column still Mm -hmm. a two column coffee, still the old style still that a lot of whiskeys are made with in Scotland. And he's got a 1500 liter copper pot still. So he, he sends the, the fermented molasses wine through those two stills and then he ages them. And so he had stuff that had been sitting there for three years. He's got 50,000 barrels approximately of, of rum aging on his property in Barbados. And then when you, that translates to about 2 million cases of rum sitting there, you know, if, between the ages of one and about 12 years old. So he already, he's always maintaining, and he's, he's the fourth generation there. So they've been maintaining this certain type of rum made a certain way. Um, and then it's all in the blend later that is the difference between our product and some of the other products mm-hmm. he makes that aren't sold in the United States. Uh, really interesting. So that was able, you're able to do that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But the three year and the five okay. year, we worked mm. together on that all the way through. And then we, we released the five year first. That was the first one we did. Um, so that, that was the kind of the beginning of it. And, and, uh, you know, and how would you characterize Barbados rum as opposed to any of the other islands? Well, Barbados is interesting because it has a it, almost a terroir in a certain way. You know, people recognize Barbados rum. They realize that there's a quality coming out of that particular territory the same way they do in Jamaica. Jamaica has a great deal of respect um, because there's a certain local regulation and there's a certain tradition and there's a certain attention to detail, I think, that you find in some of the um, distilleries in, in, in those on those two islands. So Barbados rum is traditionally an unadulterated or traditionally a dry style rum. Now, certainly there's some distilleries down there that are making sweet style product and there's some that are just making cheap alcohol and industrial alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then there are others that are really crafting fine, beautifully aged products and in, in that old Barbados tradition. So that's, that's what I was really interested in. How many distilleries are there at this point? Uh, there's, there are five. 
Um, wow, so they went from 50 down to five in the last hundred Yeah, years. and in Jamaica, there were over 100 in 1920, and they're down to, I think, six in Jamaica. And they've just conglomerated is basically what's happened. You see it all across the entire spirits industry. The distributors and the and the manufacturers are all conglomerating into these big monsters. Um, so that that's just kind of how it how it worked. But the, um, the the in the early days, most of the distilling that was going on in, in Barbados from the research that I've done was that a lot of people were taking uh, they were making micro distill distillery uh, operations. So they would take oil drums. And clean them out and turn them into mini stills. And people were trading it as a commodity. Like, I've got some rum. And I'll buy some chickens from you. Let's trade. You know, I want some vegetables. You know, I need my car fixed. I'll give you some rum. You, you do that. And that's kind of how that industry worked back then. And today it's much more of a, a, a bigger operation. Uh, and, and three of the distilleries on the island are giant, you know, huge organizations. Um, Richard's is a medium sized mm-hmm. family owned. And then there's a really small one that just started up. That's just fabulous. And the people who run it are really great called St. Nicholas Abbey. Um, good friends of ours actually that run it. Uh, so we really uh, enjoy it. And the rum community in general is really fun and lots of great people. We're all good friends. And there's been a little bit more interest recently in uh, very, very old rums, uh, mm-hmm. not produced uh, today and aged for a long time, but produced a long time ago. Have you mm-hmm. had the opportunity to try some old rums, yes. maybe even something during Bill McCoy's time? Well, there, there's there's a, an interesting component to that. You see, aged rum is a very tricky animal because that you lose a lot to evaporation through the barrel. It's called the angel's share. So if you live in Kentucky, you're probably going to lose, and you're making a bourbon, let's say, you're probably going to lose 2 3% a year to evaporation. If you live in Scotland, you might lose 1% of your Scotch whiskey every year. But if you live in Barbados or anywhere along the equator, anywhere in the Caribbean, you're going to lose between 6 and 8% per year to evaporation. So our, our, our oldest rum is a 12-year-aged rum. So at 12 years, there's like 30 to 40% left in the barrel after 12 years. So 60 to 70% has evaporated with no economic benefit to you at all. And those barrels aren't topped back up. It's just left. Well, if you don't top up, they would only, they would be down to 30 or 40%. So if you top up, then you can, you can age it longer. So I could let, I could put down a hundred barrels, let them sit for 12 years. They'll all go down to 30%, right? And then I could top them all up. I'd now have 30 full barrels and I could let that sit for another 12 years, right? Now I'd have a 24 year old rum, but those, all those barrels would be down to 30% again. So if I, th- that equates to basically 10 full barrels. So I started with 100 barrels. I now have 10 full barrels. I've let 90% evaporate with no economic benefit. Certainly there's a flavor benefit, but not an economic benefit. There's absolutely no way I could sell you those bottles of rum for less than $200 a piece. We've done the math on this. So when you see a rum with a big age statement on it, like a number, 25, 23, 21, and it doesn't have a, a, a legal age statement, it's just the use of a number, it usually means that that rum is not that age. Mm. And if it's only like 30 bucks, of course it's not that age because not. it would have to be $200. There's just no way. But what about something that was maybe bottled a very, very long time ago? Yes. There, there's stuff that's been put into, um, into glass a long time ago, different types of glass, large carboys and things like that. So you can find those. And so it's usually the big family distilleries that had kept that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you go to places, uh, different islands, which, which we've done many times actually to, to go and spend quite a bit of time in some of them to figure out who the family, uh, you know, distillers are and meet them and learn about them. Um, you can often get a, a sample of it or you can buy them and they are, you know, a hundred dollars a bottle or $200 a bottle to do that. And it's just fabulous stuff. We were, we spent five weeks on the Island of Martinique studying rum agricole and how it's made and, 
and, and meeting all those distillers and interviewing them and things like that. I'm making a rum, a rum documentary film that'll come out in a couple of years. Uh, just telling the whole story of rum. Wow. Okay. Looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah. So yeah. it's going to be really fun. Big love letter to rum. You know, it's a really, really beautiful movie, I think. And and the uh, getting to meet these people and the, you see the passion in it. And they talk about their grandfather used to do this, you know, or or their grandmother was the blender back then. You know, really interesting stories. And, um, you know, getting to try things like uh, there's a company called La Favorite in Martinique. It's very hard to find in the United States. They have a beautiful product that, that uh, we fell in love with. Um, uh, Roberto Sorales from Don Q is a good friend of mine, and he, his family's been making some really beautiful stuff. Um, there's a whole bunch of folks out there that have really great stuff, and you can try it if you hunt and peck for it, you know? All right, so we'll look out for the uh, the rum movie to, uh, to come out in a in a few years. Yeah, that... it'll probably take me two more years. I don't have a okay. lot of time right now. I'm so busy, but I just and you're focused and more on the rum, or yeah, a lot yeah. on the rum. I have two movie, two movies coming out this fall. Um, one's called Gluten Free, and it's the whole story of gluten and how we got from uh, you know uh, nobody knowing what gluten was mm-hmm. ten years ago to it being a seven billion dollar a year industry today, and and re- real problems that people have with celiac disease and gluten sensitivity, gluten intolerance, uh, you know, wheat allergies and stuff like that so it kind of busts all the myths but also explains the reality of it it's a pretty interesting story all right we'll look out for that as well this has been bailey Pryor, the real mccoy rum thank you so much what thank a, you what joe a fascinating story and just an absolutely delicious rum thank uh, you very much appreciate it i uh, also want to thank everyone here at heritage radio especially david tattashore who produces this show uh aaron fairbanks who runs the station and jack insley who uh, is going to be taking a little bit of a leave this summer to go tour the world with his lady playing music bringing great tunes to uh, to everyone uh, and thanks to all of you for listening this has been in the drink on heritage radio network.org Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.